You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Please stand or remain standing for the reading of God's Word. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope, Lord, is in you. Deliver Israel, O God, from all their troubles. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Don. I'm going to pray as we dig into this together. By the way, I'm Joel. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of getting to share God's word with you guys today. Let's pray. God, as we come before you and come before your word and we recognize that you're present here with us, would you speak to us, Lord? Would you make our hearts receptive to you? Would you guide us in your truth, as this psalm says? Would you bring us closer to yourself today and teach us your ways in Jesus' name, amen. Today we're continuing in this series in the Psalms, and the Psalms teach us how to worship God in all of the stuff of life, and so I'd like to start with telling you a story of my life where I needed to learn to worship God in all the stuff of life, and it's one that many of you probably can relate to. Many of you who have been parents uh, or are parents, you understand the struggle that we have with sleep. Can I get an amen, parents? And uh, especially when our kids are little, right, we, we, every one of them faces some kind of difficulty with their sleep at some point. And uh, as a parent of twins, we experience this for the first three years of their life. Sometimes that lasts a little bit longer because you got one, uh, them kicking each other and waking each other up and so forth, earlier on especially. Uh, but finally, once they were both sleeping through the night, Uh, For about a year later, Eli came along, 
And while he slept a little better, he didn't have anyone kicking him awake at night. Uh, He had his own struggles, right? Just like every kid does. Which meant that Emily and I spent about four out of five years with very spotty, very crummy sleep. And we were absolutely exhausted. We were like zombies. If you guys can see these pits under my eyes, those are from that season in my life. No. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and we had all kinds of stuff going on besides the lack of sleep that kind of uh, amplified it, if you will. We, we had a, a crazy life at the time. We were trying to get the girls to and from school. They had just started kindergarten, and well, preschool and then kindergarten. We had moved several times all around that season. We had car troubles. I mean, we had two cars. We had one car. We had no car. We had a car that didn't work. I mean, it was just all over the place. I was in a crazy work environment. This was stress fest, uh, what would that have been, 2011, okay? And so the lack of sleep was this thing that kind of fueled an extra degree of crazy in our family. Can I get an amen, parents? Just kind of fueled it, just amped it up a little bit. Emily and I were short with each other at times. We were emotionally volatile. I would get angry with her. I would get angry with the kids, especially in the middle of nights that were especially challenging, right? And, and especially when I felt helpless. But what I learned through that season was that my struggle with sleep was on a much, much deeper level, a struggle to trust God to provide. I had a fundamental belief that he had not and that he would not provide me with the amount of sleep that I desired that I thought I deserved or that I was actually demanding of him. Now, let's be honest, sleep is a real need. I mean, we're talking the level of food, water, and shelter, right? We need sleep, but we have to trust God with all of those things, don't we? And not trusting God with my sleep meant that my trust in Him in general was eroded in all the other aspects of my life, and I needed to learn to trust Him in this area of my life, which would then flow into these other areas of my life. And today's psalm, the reason why I'm talking about trust so much, today's psalm is all about trusting God. Now, the psalm begins with this header, you may have noticed at the beginning of it, this header that says, of David. And we've established through this time in the Psalms that those headers are actually in the original Hebrew text, so they're inspired by God. And it's teaching us something about what this Psalm is. It's a Psalm that's attributed to David. Now, it, it may have been just written in his name, but in all likelihood, it's probably written directly by David. And this Psalm is an acrostic. Anybody ever heard of an acrostic? I didn't know anything about this before I started studying this stuff. An acrostic, uh, James, uh, it, sorry, what is an acrostic? That's what I was going to tell you. An acrostic is uh, that each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, okay? And, and there are several places in Scripture that have these acrostic poems. You might wonder, like, why does it do that? Why would it go through all these different letters of the Hebrew alphabet? What's the point? Well, Dr. James Boyce gives us three reasons. First is beauty. So there's probably some sort of artistic purpose to it, right? We may not use the alphabet as our outline to to create beauty in our language, but it's probable that that was the case in the Hebrew language. We might use rhymes to accomplish beauty in poetry. 
Uh, the second one would be completeness. So you guys ever heard that saying, the subject is covered from A to Z, right? There's this, there's this sense that it's total. It, it covers the full spectrum of what there is to say about that subject. So that's the other reason why I'd be an acrostic. And the last one, the third one, would be mnemonic. Uh, so this could be used to help people remember the psalm in a, in a better way, especially probably kids. It's easier with the alphabet, right, to remember things. It's like uh, Nick was reminding me of that song by the Jackson 5 this morning. It's like A, B, C, it's easy as one, two, three, right? You remember these things through that sort of categorizing. And so because this subject of this psalm is trust, and because it uses the Hebrew alphabet, I've chosen to title this sermon, The ABCs of Trust. You like that? I thought that was pretty clever. Okay, thank you. Um, so we're looking at the ABCs of trust. And the, and the big idea that this psalm is going to give us is that God is trustworthy, so we should learn to walk in his ways. Our psalm today is a lament psalm, and just like we covered last week with lament, it, it has a lot of echoes, but this one is different from Psalm 13. Because last week, if you were with us, you saw the severity of David's circumstances, the urgency of his pleas, and, and yet in this psalm, those things are just a little bit more subdued. Uh, because while in Psalm 13, David was able to eventually, by the end of it, come to a place of trusting in the Lord, here, he actually begins with it. He begins with trust, and, and this whole psalm teaches us, like I said, to trust. So here's, here's how we'll work through it. The ABCs of trust, in other words, how to trust in God. A, this is, I'm not using numbers here, see? See that? Okay. A, remember your relationship and his love. B, give him your burdens. And C, learn to walk in his ways. This is how you can learn to trust in God. So let's look at A first. We saw this in verses 1, 6, 7, and 10. Okay, there are a lot of verses, so I'm just going to highlight them in those ways, and we'll leave those verses up if you want to reference them as I'm going. But at these verses, David remembers his relationship. He actually begins with this relationship. I don't know if you noticed that, but he begins with this phrase, Lord my God, and not in this NIV translation, but in our ESV, this word Lord is in all caps, and whenever you see the, the term Lord or the name Lord in all caps, it's the English translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. And Yahweh is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God who revealed himself to Moses through the name Yahweh, which means I am. In, in naming himself this, in God sharing, revealing himself in this way, he's saying, I exist. Nothing has to tell me to exist. Nothing made me exist. I exist. Nothing made me. I alone am God. Which is important because here, calling on Yahweh's name, David is actually calling on a very specific God. Not just any God. This is personal for him. You know, as he says, my God, Lord, my God. God, he has this 
personal God whom he has a personal relationship with. And so he says, in you I put my trust. In God, my God, I trust. Couldn't help but think about how our money says, in God we trust on it, right? And ever since the Civil War, that has been the case. And as Christians, we can give a hearty amen, right? Great. In God we trust, especially when it comes to money in a country that often struggles with greed. It's nice to be reminded, oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not trusting in this money, I'm trusting in God. And so we can say amen to that. But who is this God? Who is this God? And, and it might depend on who you ask, right? You might get as many different answers, just as many different people as you ask the question. And the point is here that David isn't general. There isn't a bunch of different gods that he's talking about. He's getting specific. It's the one true God who he has a relationship with. And what I want you to see is that every relationship is built on trust. To have a relationship with God requires us to trust in Him. The greater our trust, the greater degrees and depth of our relationship. The more we will flourish with Him, the more vibrant our relationship with, with Him will be. But the weaker our trust, the weaker our relationship with Him will be. We'll barely be hanging on. We'll barely be surviving, if not shrinking in our relationship with him. And when David remembers his relationship with God, David remembers God's love. He remembers his love. And what's interesting, I don't know if you notice this in verses 6 and 7, though David himself needs to remember God's love, he actually calls on God to remember his own love. You notice that, verse, verse 6, remember, Lord, your great mercy and love. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways, but according to your love, remember me. Why is David doing that? Why is he asking God to remember something? Does God forget? You ever think about that? You ever imagine God, you know, wandering around heaven? Son, have you seen my glasses? You know, that, that's not the God that we worship, right? So he, he, he's eternally holding all things together. How could that God possibly forget something? If he did, the universe would cease to exist, right? And so what exactly is David asking God to remember here? See, God's memory, it's different than our memory. It's perfect. He forgets nothing. And so with God, remembrance, it's really about what's driving his actions. What's driving his actions. Is God relating based on our sins and our failures? Or is God going to relate to us based on his love? That's what David is working out with the Lord in this prayer. And you know, as, as Christians, we actually experience both of these things. God relating to us based on our sins and our failures, and God relating to us based on, our, on his own love. Hebrews 12 tells us that sometimes God disciplines us. He disciplines us, but when he does, it's because he's acting as a perfect, loving father. 
He's helping us to learn to obey him, which leads to life. It it actually gives us life. And so he does it to, one, correct our sin, but he does it because he loves us so deeply. And David's, yes, amen. Can we just clap for that? Yeah, absolutely. I can use some feedback every now and again, y'all, so you're, you're welcome to do some amening when you hear it and clap as, as you want to celebrate what God's done. And here what we see is that David, he's, he's saying that he's sinned and he's rebelled against God, and so he knows that he does not deserve God's loving discipline. He deserves God's wrathful judgment. And so he's pleading with God, but he's doing so not cowering in fear, He's coming to God, uh, remembering God's love, and then asking God to act according to His love. He knows that God has both the right and the power to destroy him, but he also knows that God has both the love and the mercy, and he highlights God's faithfulness. He has all of these things in order to embrace him. And I wonder if you knew that. Christian, did did you know that God has all the right and power to destroy you, and yet, sinner, he, He has the love and the mercy and the faithfulness to embrace you? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you know this God? Or do you have maybe a, a different sort of caricature of Him in your heart? Do you imagine God differently. I mentioned that God is this loving Father. Maybe your relationship with your Father distorted the way that you see God. Do you see Him like David is is painting this beautiful picture of Him for us? Or maybe you knew God's love, but you've forgotten His love. You know, it's impossible for us to trust in God if we don't believe that He loves us. If we don't believe that God has good for us. A great way to test whether or not we believe that God has good for us is if we follow in these next two uh, ABCs of, of how to trust in God. If we give Him our burdens. Do you give Him your burdens? And see if we learn to walk in His ways, do you learn to walk in His ways? And if we're, we're struggling in those areas of bringing our burdens to God and learning to walk in His ways, then maybe, maybe we need to return to His love. Maybe we've forgotten who our God is and the love that He has for us. But once we have remembered it, we can move on to be, give Him your burdens. We saw this in verses 2, 3, 7, 11, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. This is a major theme of this psalm, although not the number one theme. So giving him our burdens. In this broken world, we recognize that our burdens include our sin, but they're much, much more than just our sin. David mentions sin in verses 7, 8, 11, and 18, and, and so this is very central, but again, it's, it's more than just that, and we'll come back to some of those other burdens in just a moment, but first, David 
brings up two of these burdens that are kind of related to sin. They're, 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 they're a direct result of our sin, and that is guilt and shame. Guilt is the knowledge that we have done wrong. Shame is the feeling that we are wrong. See the difference? Guilt is the knowledge that we have done wrong. Shame is the feeling that we are wrong. Guilt is primarily internal, where you get that sense. You're like, I know that what I've done deserves punishment. This is wrong, and it needs to be made right. Whereas shame is primarily external. It's primarily relational. It's primarily how we see ourselves or how we imagine other people see us or how God sees us. Now, I should say, as I mention these things, sometimes we think that people perceive us in a certain way and we are wrong and we shouldn't trust our judgment when it comes to shame. You see, both shame and guilt are tools in the hands of God or in the hands of our enemy. In the hands of a good and loving God, we, we actually uh, can use, he, he uses guilt and shame to actually draw us near to himself. He uses these things to bring us to himself so that we can find in him forgiveness and cleansing and so our relationship with him can be made right. Whereas in the hands of the devil, he uses these things for our harm. He uses our guilt and our shame not for our good. He, he wants to accuse us. He wants to condemn us. He wants to produce in us a lack of hope. He wants us to be isolated from other people. And ultimately, he wants to destroy us. And so while our experience of guilt and shame sometimes can be bad, especially in the hands of our enemy, we need to remember that in God's hands, both of these things can be very good. And the first burden that then David in knowledge of that, David comes to God, is the fear of the shame that he would incite if he were to trust God, but then be overcome by his enemies. Did you catch that? He's, he's telling God, I'm trusting in you. He says, do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. Verse 2. He's coming to God, but there, there seems to be a bit of fear in his prayer here, I get the sense that David is a little bit like Linus on It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, okay? Anybody remember that movie? Oh, come now. Surely more of you have seen that movie, right? <laughs> Do you guys remember that? That, that? that whole movie, I know everybody likes Charlie Brown Christmas, but this one gets a little bit less airtime, doesn't it? In the whole movie, Linus is telling everyone that the great pumpkin is coming, right? All you have to do is believe in him and then wait on him to show up, right? And Sally, of course, Charlie Brown's sister, has a, a big crush on Linus, and so she's following him the whole time. She's like going along with it. Even though uh, Linus is meanwhile being shamed by everyone, right, for what he's believing, and, and Sally joins him, trusting that their faith in the great pumpkin will vindicate them in the end, right? But what happens in the end? Anybody remember? Nobody. Okay. The great pumpkin doesn't show up. Okay. The great pumpkin doesn't show up. It's clear that Linus was taken for a fool. Someone told Linus 
a really great story, and then he lived his entire life based on that story, and he was ashamed for it. David seems a bit afraid here that he's going to end up like that. And maybe you're in a similar place where you're saying, I've placed all my trust in you, God, or I want to place all my trust in you, God, but I don't want to be taken for a fool. What if, what if I'm casting my entire life based on this story, Jesus? Am I going to be a fool in the end? And you see, Placing our trust in God is nothing, nothing like placing our trust in the great pumpkin. Can I get an amen to that, people? Unlike, unlike Linus and Sally's little cult that they formed, okay, it's a two-person cult, no Kool-Aid in their cult, but unlike Linus and Sally's cult, those who trust in God are, you know, almost three billion strong, right? <laughs> And, and we're more like not waiting on the great pumpkin. We're more like a group of people waiting on the sunrise, okay? Because the sun rising is trustworthy, amen? It happens every single day. We know it's going to happen. It's not going to put us to shame to wait on the sunrise, it's been proven time and time and time again, and God is the same way. In fact, while David begins by asking, do not let me be put to shame, in verse 2, he quickly concludes in verse 3, notice if you look up there, no one who hopes in the Lord will be put to shame. And David goes on to say that the opposite is actually true. Shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause, is what he says. Kind of a strange statement, don't you think? Treacherous without cause. It sounds like something out of the Lord of the Rings or, you know, made me think of Rebel Without a Cause, that, that James Dean movie. And it might be a little bit like that, but David is talking about those who are treacherous for the sake of being treacherous. People who are evil for the sake of being evil. People who are betraying him for the sake of betraying him and they're incurring guilt and shame because of it. In, in talking about this verse, Charles Spurgeon helps us to see that all sin is in actuality, at its root, it's, it's evil for the sake of evil because it accomplishes nothing else good. Here's what he says. Sinners have no justifiable reason or valid excuse for transgressing, or if you want to think of that word as trespassing or, or going outside of God's moral law. No valid excuse. They benefit no one, not even themselves. Who's he talking about again? Sinners, us, when we sin. We don't even benefit ourselves by our sins. See, sin's allure to us, its lie, is that it will benefit us if we do it. But he's exposing the fact that it doesn't even benefit us. The law against which they transgress or trespass is not harsh or unjust. God doesn't create harsh laws just to be mean to us. 
God is not a tyrannical ruler. Providence is not bondage. Men sin because they will sin, not because it is either profitable or reasonable to do so. Hence, shame is their fitting reward. Here's the clincher. Here's, this is so good. May they blush with penitential shame. He's saying, may our shame lead us to repentance. May it lead us back to God when we sin. Now, or else they will not be able to escape the everlasting contempt and the bitter shame, which is the portion of fools in the world to come. In other words, doing evil today brings us guilt, and it brings us shame before God, and something has to be done about it. Either we give our shame and our guilt to God today, or He will judge us and pronounce on us our guilt and shame one day. And yet David remembers that he's not without hope here. He remembers that that the one thing that separates him from these people who are doing evil for the sake of evil is that he has a covenant relationship with Yahweh. He has a covenant relationship with God, and so God has given him a way to do something about his guilt and about his shame. Look at verses 7 and 11 up there. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, O Lord, are good. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. As we said earlier, this, this forgiving and forgetting, forgiving and, and remembering that David is asking for is not about memory, it's about action. David wants God to act according to his love, not according to David's rebellion. David's iniquity he knows is great, but God's love is greater. Can I get an amen? Our iniquity is great, but God's love is greater. Do you know that, sinner? Do you believe that? And I wonder today what burdens you are carrying what burdens you are being weighed down with today that you are not giving to Him? What what are you being crushed under the weight of guilt? What are you wanting to hide from God, from, from others due to your shame? David, in the whole of Scripture, it's imploring us, give it to God. Bring it to him. He offers us forgiveness. He offers us cleansing. And and you know, David gives more to God than just his shame and his guilt. Remember we said that, that there's more to the brokenness that we experience in this world than just sin. And David comes to God in, in this lament psalm, weighed down by many heavy burdens. And all of them he's giving to God. He's burdened by the pain of loneliness, he says. He's suffering under affliction and anguish, trouble and distress. David is being hated by others. His life is under threat, he says. All of these things seem to be due to his enemies coming after him. Presumably, this was one of 
those times I told you guys about last week when David's life is in danger. He had many throughout his life. And as we spoke about during last week's psalm, we may not be in that kind of danger. And we struggle to relate with David sometimes because we don't have people, you know, hunting us down from the mafia, right? But we remembered last week, we do have real enemies. The world, the flesh, the devil, the Bible teaches us. All of these seeking to destroy us. And as a result, we may experience many of the same things that David is bringing, to, giving to God here. Are you burdened by the pain of loneliness today? Are you burdened suffering under affliction or anguish or trouble or distress or being hated by others? Give your burdens to God. Give them to God. Not only does God take our burdens from us, but He actually teaches us how to walk in his ways. This is our final point, C, as it were, of the ABCs of how to trust in God. And we saw this, this is probably the, the central theme of this psalm. We saw this in verse 4, verse 5, verse 8, 9, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, 21, and 22. Remarkably, all of most of these fitting on that screen there. And we learn to walk in God's ways. David is a person learning to trust in God, and so he pleads with God here in verse 4. He says, show me your ways. In verse 5, guide me in your truth. In verse 4, teach me your paths. I want to learn from you, David is saying. He's saying, instruct me, verse 8. Why does David want him, want God to teach him? Why does David want God to to lead him, and the answer is because he knows what God is like. He knows who this God is. Verse 8, he says, you're good, God. You're upright. You're so good. You're upright. You, you always do righteousness and justice. Verse 10, God, you're loving. You're faithful towards those who keep the demands of your covenant. God is so good. Amen. Hallelujah. See, the Lord, He doesn't have to teach us, does He? But He's so good that He does. He loves us so much that He does. The God who is holding the universe together stoops down to our level to teach us, to walk with us. Because he's that good, because he loves us that much. He could stand off like an absentee father, pointing his finger at us, accusing us of all the wrong that we're doing without helping us to see a better way. But no, he doesn't do that. He's a God who instructs us because he wants a relationship with us. And remember, every relationship is built on trust. He wants us to trust him. He's so committed to us that he wants us to be that committed to him. Why? Because he wants to give us life. That's how much he loves us. God is the author of life, and he is the only one in whom life can be found. That means that he's the only place where true wisdom for this life can be found, where true guidance is found. You know, as human beings, we've 
we've discovered some incredible things about the organization and the, the, the order of this world. I was just talking to Jim, one of the scientists in our church, about this this week, about how you can just recognize God's fingerprints on everything. You can see how wise he is. But if we are ever to discover anything wise, it's only because we are discovering what God has already wisely ordered. He's already designed it. And every once in a while, we stumble on something amazing that he has created order in. And so David comes to God. He says, you saved me. Yes, you saved me. Now guide me. Clearly, you're the one who knows about life. So why don't you show me the way to life? And so David asks, will you give me, you've given me a taste of how wonderful you are. Will you just give me more? Give me more of yourself. Guide me, teach me. David doesn't want to settle for being freed from guilt and shame and be delivered from his enemies. He, he wants more than that. He actually wants to become more like this God who is saving him. He wants to learn about how God does things so that he can find the way to life. And you know what is so sad? This, is, this keeps me up at night sometimes. This is one of the more sad things to me as a pastor. Many Christians don't believe that God's instruction is life-giving. So many of us, we just don't believe that His instruction is life-giving. We believe that His instruction, His law, His rules, His, His guidance is burdensome and crushing. All they think about is how they fail to meet God's standards rather than seeing God's standard as being there so that by His grace we can ascend to it, so we can find life in Him and, and pursue it. And so Christians, let me give you a little pop quiz. Which one is it? Does God instruct sinners so that they can know that they're sinners? Or does He teach us His ways so that He can help us to grow to be more like our Heavenly Father? Which one? Yes. <laughs> yes, the answer is Yes, he wants us to have this abundant life. Can you see God's love for us in his ways that he gives to us? Can you see his wisdom in how he instructs us how to live? Can you trust him to teach you how to live? You know, one of the hardest things for people to trust God with is morality. Amen? Morality, and nowhere is this more pronounced in our culture than when it comes to sexuality. We're conditioned to believe that you've got good sex over here, right? And then you have God's will in all of His ways over there. But if God is the creator of all things, including us and including sexuality, then His ways are the best ways, amen? His ways are the ways that lead us to human flourishing as we function within His great ordered design. And Peter Volk is a, a same-sex attracted Christian who runs a ministry called Equip. It's a ministry for Christians who are committed to the historical biblical sexual ethic. Yeah, it's getting really long, isn't it? <laughs> 
And he tells this story about how he took this journey to trust God with his sexuality. It was a very difficult thing for him. He said that like many of those who were raised in the church, who experienced same-sex attracted, he realized this as a teenager and, and he kept it dark for years and years. He didn't want to tell his parents. He didn't want to tell you know, his, his youth leaders. He was afraid of how people would respond to him. He was afraid of the shame that he would encounter. Trusting in God would mean sharing about himself truthfully with someone who was trustworthy, but he didn't want to do that. Trusting in God would mean surrendering his sexuality to the lordship of Jesus, but he wasn't sure if he wanted to do that either. And eventually all of this came to light, and and over the years that this desire of his had festered and grown in the dark, he says he learned all kinds of misshapen ways of seeing himself, all kinds of misshapen ways of, of viewing God. And, and those things, they lingered on for some years after this change began. It took him many more years to learn to trust God and learn to trust in God's love, really, and learn to trust in God's wisdom for sexuality. But now... He sees God's ways, he says, as beautiful. He sees it actually as essential for his flourishing as he walks through this committed to his own celibacy and singleness. Now, I'm not sure how all of this transition happened for him exactly. I haven't heard that part of his story, but I trust that it's a result of the church faithfully reflecting God's love and care towards Peter. And I hope that at Trinity with those of you who experience same-sex attraction, you would experience the same kind of love and care and invitation to God's wisdom and His ways. Amen? Can we amen that, church? I also recognize, though, that it's these misshapen aspects of Peter's story that he talks about uh, and, and the misshapen ways of viewing God and his sexuality. Those same things are actually present in all of us in our culture who aren't same-sex attracted, right? I mean, I I can testify this was true of me. Some of the markers of it are viewing sex as an end in itself. It's, it's viewing people with a lens of objectification of them and not as image bearers of God. It's viewing pleasure over intimacy and covenant like God has designed it to be. And all of us, whatever our attractions, we need to remember God's love. We need to give Him our burdens, including as it pertains to our sexuality. And we need to learn to walk in His ways. We all need to trust God. And we need to trust Him with our sexuality. And a huge part of the wisdom that we need in order to trust Him is related to time. You know, David talks a lot about time here in this verse. My hope is in you all the day long, he says. My hope is in you all the day long. My hope, O Lord, verse 21, is in you. 
Deliver us, O oh God, from all of our troubles. He's, he's not praying things like, God, if you get me out of this situation, then I'll do X, Y, and Z for you. He's not doing this transactional thing with God. No, David is in it for the long haul. He is absolutely committed to God. You see, trusting in God's wisdom and God's instruction, it's not about what David can do for God. It's about responding to what God has done for David. And the same is true for us Christians as we come to the living God. We don't pursue becoming more like him or pursue his ways because we're getting to him or we're somehow doing something for him, but rather we do so out of response to what he's done for us in Jesus. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has revealed the love that David knew only in part. David knew it in a fraction of what we know it to be through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has revealed the lengths that he's willing to go to in order for us to give him our burdens. And in the person of Jesus Christ, God has fully revealed his ways because Jesus is the wisdom of God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is the reason that we can trust God. God is faithful, and we know this is true because of what he's done in Jesus. Through all of his promises for thousands and thousands of years, they came to fruition, and they are coming to fruition through the person of Jesus Christ. God is trustworthy, so we should learn to walk in his ways. I want to close with a story. I know I'm way over time. Holy smokes, guys. Sorry it's late, but we'll get you out of here soon. I just want to share one last story with you, and then we're going to respond to God together. I told you a story about struggling with sleep, right, the beginning of the message. And, and if you had come up to me and you'd said, Joel, do you believe that God loves you? What do you think I would have said? Of course, right? I, I, I thought I believed God loved me, right? But I didn't believe that he would provide for me. I believe that if I was going to get the sleep that I desired, that I deserved, that I demanded, it was going to be up to me to make it happen because God had let me down. I was not happy with what God had provided for me. He didn't, he didn't know that he was doing wrong. <laughs> he was messing it up, right? I say that sarcastically. He didn't know that I needed more than four to five hours of sleep a night, Come on, God, get it together, get it right. But then I realized that the issue wasn't that God was wrong for not giving me what I wanted. and to repent, of course. No, I, I recognize God, God is loving. He wouldn't withhold sleep from me because he's just mean, right? No, that wasn't the issue. The issue was I wasn't trusting him. And so how could I begin to do it? Began, just like with David, remembering God's love, giving him my burdens. So I confessed the sin to him that I'd forgotten his love, that I doubted him, that I didn't believe that he wanted good for me, that I didn't trust him to provide this for me. And then every night, I'm telling you, every night for several years, I don't remember when this ended, before our family went to bed, we would pray together, and we still do, but this was the prayer that I prayed during that season. Father, thank you for taking care 
of our every need. We pray that tonight you would give us exactly the amount of sleep that each person needs. And you know what I began to learn through that was I realized that he was going to answer that prayer, wasn't he? I was able to trust in his sovereign hand. And and you know what happened? Through all of that, all of us began to recognize that whatever he gave us, that was the right amount. And we were all less anxious about our sleep. We were all less angry, especially me, uh, (laughs) when what we got wasn't what we wished it was. And we all began to, strangely enough, we all began to sleep better. And when we had rough nights, in the middle of the night, I would wake up and I would return to that prayer. God, I'm trusting you with this. I I know I'm beginning to doubt. I want to return to your love. I know you're going to take care of me. This amount of sleep that I'm losing right now while I'm rocking Eli to sleep or whatever, I'm going to trust you with it. I would plead with God in those times. I would cast myself on his sovereign will and his sovereign plan. And through it, I actually learned to trust him more in my whole life. I became more dependent on him in a way that I hadn't before. Praise God. Praise God. Two questions as we close, and then we're going to respond. What is one area of your life that you don't believe you can trust God with? And what would it look like to practice the ABCs of trust? Let's respond to him together. Let me pray. Father, you, as David says, are so good. We cannot wrap our minds around how good you are. We cannot recognize, God, at times how deep your love is, but help us to see that through Jesus you've revealed it to us. Help us to return to your cross, Jesus, to your resurrection to the way that you're reigning over us today, that we might trust in you in deeper and deeper ways. God, we need you in our lives. We need to learn your ways. We pray that that would happen in your name, Jesus Christ. We pray, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.